Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, as the poet said, Here in my car, I feel safest of all. I can lock on my doors. It's the only way to live in cars. Many of us spend a large portion of our lives in cars. Many of us are annoyed by other people in their cars. The fact is, human beings behind the wheels of their automobiles are dangerous. In 2015, over 35,000 Americans died in fatal car crashes. And with the advent of texting while driving, those numbers are trending up. So one question is, why not just let the computer do the driving? There are environmental, social, and economic concerns as well. The Seattle-based environmental nonprofit Forterra hosted this panel discussion, Driving the Revolution, Self-Driving Cars, and the Future We Want, to explore exactly where we are now and maybe headed. If you're at all curious about what the future holds for the rules of the road, you'll find answers here. This Forterra Seed and Feed event took place at the Living Computers Museum and Labs on September 20th. KUOW's Ross Reynolds moderated the panel, which included Tom Alberg, Shafali Ranganathan, Mark Hallenbeck, and John Lass. Sonia Harris recorded the discussion. Forterra board member Terry Mutter introduced the event. I don't know about the rest of you, but this is my first time to the lab, um, the Living Computers Museum and Lab. And I, I don't know if people had a chance to try out the autonomous uh, vehicle exhibit around the corner. Did anybody have a chance to sit in there? I got a little motion sickness. <laughs> I don't do very well in those 3D space environments, but it's just amazing what the technology can do. Uh, a big thank you to the museum and to Matisse for hosting Forterra and the excellent panel that we have here this evening. Thank you to each of the panelists for being here tonight and to KUOW for recording so that we can share this important message far and wide. Now, I'd like to introduce to you tonight's moderator. Ross Reynolds is KUOW Public Radio, Radio's executive producer for community engagement. He's been at KUOW for 30 years. Prior to his current position, Ross was a talk show host, a news director, a program director and a reporter. He's the recipient of two Edward R. Murrow Awards and a Society of Professional Journalists Excellence in Journalism Award. Please give, a, give Ross a warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. <laughs> Standing ovation. <laughs> um, I'm so delighted to be doing this panel because it's a subject that has really interested me for a while and, and researching this panel and what we were going to talk about tonight, I got even more interested in it. I have to admit, I almost drove the uh, display drive auto autonomous car off the road before the autonomy took over. So I've got a learning curve here. Um, the reason I'm kind of delighted with this panel is that it's put together with such great balance on all sides. Mark, and you can read more detailed biographies of them in your flyers, but Mark's our go-to guide, KUOW, for all transportation issues. He's just up to, up to speed on all of them, always interesting to talk to. Uh, Shafali is representing sort of the consumer aspect of it and equity in transportation for people. John is uh, advising the banking industry and talking to some of the people who will be influenced by what goes on with autonomous cars. And Tom is someone who's actually got some investments in this area, so he's actually got some skin in the game. So a really great, well-rounded panel. What we're going to do is talk for about uh, 45 minutes or so. We're going to have about 15 minutes for conversation afterwards, and I'm sure some of the folks are going to be able to hang out afterwards if you'd like to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. So uh, just to begin with, and we could just go down the line, um, is it certain that we will have autonomous cars? Will they become a large part of our transportation future? And if so, when? Mark, you want to kick it off? So the simple answer is yes, we will have autonomous cars. Um, I think you'll see them in constrained environments uh, in four to five years. I mean, heck, you can buy a Tesla right now and push the autopilot button, and it'll drive you to Spokane just fine. So you'll see a limited number of locations that you'll be able to do that in the very near future, but we won't see the, I get to push the button and go to sleep no matter where I want to go 
yeah, for 20 years, 15 years. So some degree of autonomy, but not I can go to sleep and it'll get me there. Okay. Yeah. Shafali, what's your thoughts? Um, I agree with Mark. I think we're going to see um, autonomous vehicles being part of, and I say this, a part, not the silver bullet, uh, of a transportation network. Uh, I'm a little more skeptical. I think uh, this type of technology to get humans to give over control of something like a car, which were many is a symbol of independence, right? I think that there's the, that piece that will take some adaptation. And there's also our fleet. How long will it take to actually turn over the entire fleet to get to full autonomy? But yes, so I'm guessing maybe 30, 30 35 years. John, you're advising the banking industry, so clearly they're taking this seriously as part of their future. Yeah, uh, I just literally flew in from Los Angeles and I was in a meeting with uh, some of the biggest credit unions across the country who do a lot of automobile lending and we spent the whole morning talking about what the likely impact of autonomous vehicles is going to be on their lending business. So like BECU was at this meeting and they take it very seriously. I think it's definitely coming. Uh, I'm probably going to be a little more aggressive than some of the others. I think by 2025 you'll see a lot of autonomous vehicles on the road and by 2030 I think they'll start to become reasonably prevalent in some locations because it's going to require a lot of governmental cooperation. I also think that in other societies like China and Singapore, it's going to happen a lot faster than here. Why is that? It's more of a controlled society where yeah. it takes a lot of governmental cooperation to make this happen. Uh, and there's a whole societal shift that has to happen in terms of the adoption of autonomous vehicles. Uh, I just think those societies are going to push it faster than you'll see happen here. Perhaps fewer liability issues than we might see in this country. Could be. Could yeah. be. Yeah. And Tom, what's your best bet as to what, are we going to see autonomous cars? And if so, when might we see them? Um, well, only on this issue, I'm probably the most radical person here. The, um, you can hold the mic a little know, bit closer. If, if, if yeah. we had, uh, you know, it's just remarkable technology progress in the last uh, three years, remarkable uh, acceptance by people like the uh, Department of Transportation. You know, Obama has endorsed it because of all the benefits. Inslee recently was, uh, I couldn't have been more effusive than he was. And part of it, I mean, if we held, held this meeting, um, Three years ago, there would have been a few science fiction fanatics who would have showed up and nobody else. And, uh, you know, it's obviously uh, become highly interesting. I think it's because the, the technology path is pretty clear. And I think the social consequences and exactly when everybody will start wanting these cars is, is like a lot of new technologies, you don't really know the, the timing and the full effect of that. But on the, on the, physical or, uh, you know, the actual vehicles. Tesla, in a lot of ways, has, has autonomous features, um, automatic braking, keeping you in your lanes. I think within the next 12 months, you know, they will be touting that it is um, under certain conditions, um, depending on the laws, you could, you know, take your hands off the wheel and not pay attention. Um, Audi has recently announced that next year they will have what they call uh, level three, which is under certain conditions, you will be, it'll be fully autonomous. And in their case, they said that means there'll be automatic braking, lane control, and up to um, 35 miles an hour. And I mentioned this to uh, Judy, my wife, and, and, and I said, well, that's pretty limited. She said, well, you never can go faster than 35 <laughs> miles an hour on most streets. Um, and then, but I think when you really will start to see um, a lot of autonomous vehicles being introduced, it, won't, it, it doesn't mean ubiquitous, but what's called level four, which is under many conditions on highways, on many streets, it can be fully autonomous where you do not have to pay attention. And so I think that'll be in about uh, 2021. Uh, Ford has announced they're gonna do it then. Just about every vehicle manufacturer has targeted uh, 2020, 21 for this level four. It doesn't mean you could do it under all conditions every place, but I think it will be start to be really introduced. And then I think it's really hard to know when is it going to be ubiquitous. Is that, uh, I think there will be a tipping point, you know, on automobiles, at least in urban areas, versus horse and buggy. There came to be a tipping point. And when that happened, there were thousands and 
ultimately millions of automobiles, uh, replacing um, uh, horse and buggy. So I think that will happen. I just can't tell you when. Mark wants to jump in here with an addition. One thing I want to bring out is there's a whole lot of different definitions of what an automated vehicle is. And a lot of the disagreement on, what a, on when they will arrive has to do with what these really mean, when, what you mean when you say automated vehicles. And that was a, a great description, Tom, of level three, level four. These are terms that National Highway, Tra National Highway Traffic Safety Administration came up to provide an idea of different levels of automation. So the ability of a car to operate in all cases without a human is way farther out than the ability of a car to drive by itself in the right conditions. And so you take that and remember when people talk about automated vehicles, make sure what you think they're talking about from a level of automation and what they think about and level of automation are the same because that's a, it's a really big spread from the car that can drive himself in the right conditions to the car that can deal with a snowstorm as Hurricane Harvey slides by. You know, those are real different outcomes. I'm pretty sure that an, an automated car, a computerized car, will be a better driver than I am. But the question I have for you is that sometimes there are driving situations in which there is no good outcome. There are only less bad outcomes. Or maybe there are two bad outcomes. For example, you're in a situation where the car has to decide whether it's going to hit the woman with the buggy over here or the two elderly people here. There's no other alternative. The car has to decide whether it's going to ram into the school bus or ram into the tree where you, the passenger, may be injured by it. How do you get, how do you get to those, how does the computer make those decisions and will we know what those decisions are before it happens? It's a great point, but I think the, the first point we need to address is that I think the general feeling is, and I believe, that autonomous vehicles are going to be much safer than human drivers. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but whereas for many years the number of fatalities in the United States was going down, for the last four years it's been going up, and it's been going up because of iPhone and smartphones that so many people are texting. This year, more than 50,000 Americans are going to die in traffic fatalities, and globally that number is 2 million. So if you just look at the safety, you know, and like Elon Musk has, has said that, you know, he's not going to feel comfortable until his autonomous vehicles are at least 10 times safer than a manually driven car. And so, you know, Tom talked about a tipping point. I think there's a tipping point out there where the most dangerous thing on the road is going to be a car with a human driver. You know, and then that'll be interesting to see how society reacts to that. But in terms of the kind of ethical choices that you're talking about, the country of Germany, about two weeks ago, uh, Germany is, you've got BMW, Mercedes, they're all very aggressively pushing autonomous vehicles. Uh, the German transportation ministry issued as a, as a talking piece 20 ethical principles to govern how autonomous vehicles should operate. So does it hit the, the mother with the baby or does it hit the two old people? That's right. It's which, because which, which is an ethical decision. Well, for example, one of the principles well, one of the principles that's being debated is should the first priority of the autonomous vehicle be to protect the passenger in the car or should it be to protect somebody on the street? I mean, now or that's some not buddies. A, that's not a decision that a computer can ever make. So that's going to be part of the algorithm that's built in to the autonomous vehicle, but I like the fact that Germany's taken the step of putting 20 principles out to start the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there'll be hard-edged cases and but these are frankly the exception and you know, again, compared to human drivers, you know, a car will not, autonomous vehicle will not get drunk. It will not get distracted. It will not get angry. Um, but there will be incidents. And so I think this is going to be, you know, a challenge for people to accept autonomous vehicles. At the same time, we have 40,000, you know, highway accidents or injuries a year. You know, two well-publicized autonomous vehicle accidents get you know, 10 times more uh, publicity than that. And so that's going to be a challenge that for us to make some rational choices here. Uh, to try to add more to, to what you're asking for, the, the algorithms involved will be, one, written by humans, 
unless AI takes over writing software, which it could and far enough out. Uh, the second part of it is those algorithms can only in include the information that's available to the sensors, whatever the sensor package may be. So they'll identify a tree as a tree. They'll identify a pedestrian as a pedestrian. The odds of them identifying the pedestrian as being old or young or small, the odds of them knowing whether there are people on the school bus or not is small because that information is most likely not going to be broadcast in a way that, that the sensor network will pick it up. So most likely the collision avoidance will say that's a really big thing, it's a bus. It may even understand that it's a bus. It may not be able to determine whether it's a bus or an RV. It's big, it's got two axles, I can, you know, mass velocity damage control. It might do that if, that, if it's smart enough. But the level to which we sometimes expect it to be smart is unlikely. They won't have the information available to the algorithm if the algorithm knew what to do with it. So there will be a level of ethics involved. There will be, and one hopes anyway, um, and that might actually become a sales point in how you sell your GM car versus your Volvo car versus whatever. Ours will run over people who are Republicans, but they won't run over Democrats. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> something along those lines. But um, uh, remember the sensor package is what you're allowed to use for information and what you get will be what you can make for an information. Uh, Shafali, your organization kind of focuses on alternatives, walking, biking, mass transit, not cars, and we're talking about autonomous cars. So in your vision of an equitable transportation future, what are your hopes and concerns about the introduction of autonomous cars? I think everyone expects us to be opposed to autonomous vehicles. That's simply not true. We see... Um, driverless cars is very much part of the equation. When we build out mass transit, how are people going to get to that system? How are we going to live in a future where cost of owning a car, AAA, is, says is $10,000 a year? 90% of the time that car just sits in your garage or on the street parked, right? And so can we move to a future where car ownership, where it's mobility, it's not about owning a car, it is about this idea of new mobility where it's shared, it's autonomous, it's electric, so it's cleaner. Um, so we think that it is part of the future. Um, from an equity standpoint, I think it's always about access, right? Um, how can this new mobility be part of another option for somebody to get where they want to go? And this is where I think government and the public sector will play a very important role in making sure that people can access it, that you don't need to own or have access to a $100,000 Tesla to be able to take advantage of this technology, that if you don't have a smartphone or you don't speak English, that that is not a barrier for you to be able to access this uh, technology. And so I think they're part of the network. I think that as advocates, as um, the public sector, it is our role to partner with the private sector to figure out how can we make this new mobility available to the most people. Does it sap money, though, away from the current alternatives? If government's putting money into autonomous vehicles, are they maybe not putting so much money into light rail? That's a good question. I think that's one we struggle with. Uh, I don't think it's an either-or question, right? And uh, the region's made a decision, okay, we're moving forward, we're building our mass transit system. Uh, I think the biggest challenge is going to be how do we get people to the system? And it's not always going to be efficient uh, to run a 40-foot bus or to, for somebody to ride their bike or even to build a bunch of parking garages. And so I think the question for us is, what is the backbone of the system look like? And you know, I think in this region, geography will always catch up with us. We are bounded by water, and we're constricted by how much space we have. So yes, we could move to a future of fully autonomous and still not have enough room to move people efficiently and affordably. So I think they're part of it, but we got to figure out there's a solution for Every type of situation in an urban situation, I think it's first and last mile to get people or in really congested areas where you don't want the human driver clogging up the street. Right now, there are a variety of automobiles out there. Some people are driving their own. Some people are taking Uber. Some people are taking taxis. Some people are taking cabs. But when it comes to cars, when it comes to automobiles, does the entry of autonomous vehicles mean that fewer people will own their own cars. I mean, you've got an Uber where there's no driver that supposedly will get you where you want to go really safely. Is this going to lower, mean that more people will just give up cars 
entirely. What do you think, Mark? So first of all, there are two extremely different, related, but extremely different business markets in automated vehicles. And the business markets serve very different geographic areas. In a dense urban area where you pay for parking, it's a great way to do your division. Do you have to pay for parking? You don't have to pay for parking. In a place where you have to pay for parking, the financial incentives and the perceptual incentives to have a cheap lift come up and pick you up and take you somewhere drive you very quickly to let somebody else own the car, have it arrive fast. The density of those areas, which is why you're paying for parking, is high enough that the utilization of those vehicles is high, which drives the cost down and increases the likelihood that a business will make enough money to have a readily available vehicle. So in Ballard, in Belltown, downtown, Capitol Hill, you're gonna have an awful lot of people who don't want to own a car and will use these. The farther away you get, where parking is free, where land uses are separated, the efficiency of the use of that Uber, Lyft, taxi vehicle is really bad. If you look actually right now at the studies being done on Uber and Lyft, you see deadheading is somewhere between 70% uh, or excuse me, there's a deadhead mile about 0.7 of a deadhead mile for the mile you drive. And explain what a deadhead mile is. A deadhead mile is, mile is a, a mile that you drive to go get the next trip, right? So you drop somebody off, you, you take a, a trip for 10 miles, you have to drive seven miles to pick up the next trip. So there's an awful lot of wasted miles in that. In an urban area, that number is smaller, in, in a dense area, in a suburban area, in a rural area, that becomes a really big number. So in those areas as well, the second business model comes in. That's, I call the first one the Uber model, the second one's the GM model. The second one is GM would like to sell you a car, okay? They really would like to sell you a car. They're looking at trying to run their own taxi services in urban areas, but they still would love to sell you a car. And if you live in, where my son lives, in Mill Creek, right, and you're 15 miles from anything, to have to wait for a vehicle to come get you, and oh, by the way, it needs two car seats for your kids, right? And oh, and bike rack in order to get you to Cougar Mountain or ski racks or whatever other utilities, why we buy SUVs, even though we don't need an SUV for 80% of our trips. The right vehicle has to come get you, take you to the store, it then has to be available to pick you up and take you back. And oh, by the way, each one of those trips is five bucks. In a taxi, it's 15. In our automated car, it's five. Right now, your comparison is I pay up front for my car. Yes, it's expensive, but it's a fixed capital cost. And then that trip to Safeway is free. The parking is free. I don't have to put gas in it. It's going to be electric, solar power. It's free. And so you have a very different perceptual model in a place that has suburban. And the farther rural you get, the more likely you'll buy the automated vehicle. It's still automated, it still has all those cool features, yes, you like it, but a really different business model. And those people are likely to continue to buy cars because of the nature of the trips they make and the sure. perceptions of their travel. But there are a few people who live in the country, and in Toto, I'm kind of really curious as to what uh, John and Tom have to say about this. Will we see fewer people owning cars? I think so, I think for several reasons. I mean, first, um, if you just look at the shift in behavior that's already happened with rideshare in, in the Bay Area right now, Uber and Lyft, between the two of them, have 35,000 cars on the streets. And that's way more than the number of cabs that you ever had on the streets. So the cabs are still there, even though they filed for bankruptcy. They're still operating. But, and every time I'm in San Francisco, which is frequently, I always I take Lyft. That's my preferred uh, you know, shared ride company. And I'm always at, talking to the drivers. Everyone that I talk to is busy all day long. So think about that. You've got 35,000 Uber and Lyft cars on the roads in the Bay Area. They're busy all the time. The cabs are still there. They're busy. So what that tells me is you've got a lot of people that are using shared ride that would have previously used a different form of transportation. Now, some of that could have been mass transportation. Some of that could have been their own car. The second thing is MIT recently did a very, I, I thought, a very good study uh, where they got uh, point-to-point -point, uh, ride data in Manhattan from all of the cab companies, Uber and Lyft. And they looked at all of the rides over the course of a week, point-to-point, -point, point A to point B. And there was something like 25,000 cars that had been involved in moving the people around. And MIT concluded that with even a minimal amount of optimization, they could have moved all those passengers with 3,000 cars. Okay, the third point is, 
you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to friends who have, uh, you know, uh, teenage children, you know, when I was 14, one of my big priorities was getting to my driver's license. That doesn't seem to be so much the case. You know, I'm talking to a lot of people whose kids are just not that interested in getting a license. So I believe that there's a paradigm shift happening. Tom? Car manufacturers want to sell more cars, and we know how powerful they are. We're also... We also, who's, uh, who killed Roger Rabbit? We know that they killed mass transit. Could they kill uh, autonomous vehicles because it's not in their interest to sell fewer cars? What do you think, Tom? Yeah, well, it's interesting. They're actually trying to jump on board. Um, you know, General Motors is, I think, talking about how their first vehicles, autonomous vehicles, will be fleet sales. And uh, so they're really looking at selling it to cars to Uber and to go and um, and they also you know project that you know their regular business I think they'll be smart businessmen I, it's not to say in the short term or medium term all people will abandon cars or even car ownership I do think you'll find increasingly that people may own one car instead of two or three um, there's plenty of um, you can imagine a lot of different scenarios where people will want to use a, you know, pay by the hour or by the mile. Um, there was an article in the newspapers a couple days ago how uh, Sound Transit, for the park and ride lot down in Kent, they're building, what is it, 350 new parking spaces. 100000 what was it? $100,000 a parking space. And you think, well, um, how about people hopping in an Uber to drive to to, for that last mile. I mean, there's lots of people that need to get to the uh, rail, and I think, you know, a lot of that could be uh, Uber or Lyft or, or other types of things. Um, and so I, th I think we're going to see, I, th I think, in fact, though, I think it's very hard to predict all these social ownership models and people who, you know, write articles and talk confidently about. You know, you see, you see numbers like, you know, car ownership will decline to 20% of families will own cars. We don't really know that that's going to happen. I think it's very hard to understand that. But I don't think it's hard to understand that autonomous vehicles will eventually be ubiquitous um, every place, in, including rural areas. If I live far out, I would like to get in the car and not have to waste all that time to get to the city. So there's, but again, I don't think we can predict the exact timing and, and extent. Can I just give you a quick yeah. perspective from um, an OEM, an automobile manufacturer? I was talking recently uh, in San Francisco to um, a gentleman who's the CEO of a company that's working on what's called Intelligent Grid, which is linking all of the autonomous vehicles so that they'll all be talking, you know, they'll be communicating with each other via telemetry. And he had recently had a meeting with some senior executives from BMW. And one of the BMW executives made the comment that the value in the automobile sector is no longer in the car, it's in the intelligence behind the car. Now, BMW builds a pretty good car, so that's an interesting comment. Before we leave the business end of the panel, I had a question for you about what the issue that Shafali raised, which was equity. In a future where there are autonomous cars, are there going to be people who are more advantaged by these transportation options and others who become more disadvantaged than they are now? What do you think, Tom? Well, I'm, of course, an uh, optimist on this, and I think it's an important issue, but I think the cost of car usage, let alone car ownership, is going to come down substantially. And so a lot of people, I mean, you've got elderly and firm, they can't use cars at all, They're use, they were using taxis, at least now they can use uh, Uber and Lyft at much lower price. Um, uh, think of the cost of insurance, if uh, someone owns a car, um, huge, uh, huge cost. Uh, a, an automobile accident. You don't have to be rich or poor to have an automobile accident. And it's hard to have an automobile accident of even a minor kind, and it's not $1,000. So I think the total cost of car usage, whether it's ownership or otherwise, will come way down. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at vouchers for getting people to, from their 
uh, homes to rail or other, other types of programs. I think we should, at least on an interim basis. But I think in the longer term, autonomous vehicles are in fact the answer to the equity. It is a huge benefit to everybody, including low-income populations, to have this you know, develop and spread. John, what do you think about that? Well, look, I believe the, the net benefit of autonomous vehicles is going to be hugely positive to society. I mean, in terms of safety, productivity, I think it's going to open up lots of new job categories. At the same time, I think there is going to be a societal shift that has to take place, and there's going to be some dislocation, you know, because right now, uh, guess which job category? There's one job category that's number one, two, or three in 47 of the 50 states, truck driver. Okay, uh, there are companies in Silicon Valley today that are working on convoy autonomous trucks where you'll have 10, 15, 20 autonomous trucks going across the country. You might have a human in the lead truck and a conductor in the final truck, but the whole thing's going to be autonomous, you know, and it'll go point to point. And when they get to a major city, maybe you'll have a pilot that will come on just like a cargo ship comes into, you know, Elliott Bay. But that's, that's happening right now. This is technology. And Elon Musk, by the way, uh, he's about to launch his first uh, truck, electric truck, which will also have full autonomous capability within a couple of months now. So, yeah. But I, I net net believe that the benefit to society is enormous. Well, part of me thinks that's really cool, and part of me thinks there's a whole lot of truck drivers without jobs. Shivali? Um, you know, and I think that's what it is, right? Can we use technology to actually have a public good? And, well, you know, with autonomous vehicles, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe a computer isn't biased, right? And if we're talking about service, well, bias in terms of kind of like, well, who will you serve? Who will you serve? And so I always think about, and I always push companies like Chariot and others to think about that, is can you use your technology and test it in communities that have lacked from this access to be able to create systems that create a better parity around access? And I, you know, I, that's why I think it's like, well, you know, a computer just sees a destination to pick up at, right? They don't know what neighborhood it is. They don't care. They're just going to pick up that passenger. So I sort of see that as an opportunity to be able to use that technology to, to benefit more in the community. On the truck driver issue, I think we're seeing this across the board, right? We're seeing it with auto workers. We are seeing it with general manufacturing sector, is that we have to create a, a series of systems that create, that allow for retraining, that allow for setting up the next generation of jobs. And I think that's kind of why we're seeing sort of, there's a certain sector that is still struggling because you know if you worked at an auto company um, and you were trained for that, you were good for your entire like career because it was a good good family wage job and you got to retire. That Well, that's not the truth anymore. And more and more we're seeing, even with the trucking sector, you're driving longer hours, it's a stressful job. Can we find ways to use this technology to also solve for, for the fact that, that, yes, there will be people that will be out of a job? Well, exactly, and the, the public transportation system isn't working well for everyone as it is. I mean, partly that's because jobs are often located very far away from where low-income people live. They have to ride from Kent to the east side to take a minimum wage job, hours on the bus. This happens really often. You mentioned just a little bit earlier, you thought that government will have to be involved in order to ensure equity with the introduction of autonomous cars. Have you thought that forward very much? Uh, vouchers, um, a, a special rate for individuals who qualify because of their income levels. How might government be involved to ensure that this future actually serves everybody, not just folks who can afford it. So it's it. happening right now. So we are working with the city, uh, the Department of Transportation in the city of Seattle to uh, develop a low-income transportation program. The idea is that it's a suite of options, your Orca Lift card, which is the low-income transit fare, uh, a discounted membership to car to go uh, discounts on Uber and Lyft, and so uh, bike share. And the idea is you create a menu of options that people choose the option that works for them, right? And what the role of government there is to set something up where they create a level playing field, where you know so car companies and other private sector they're looking to make a business model work. I think government can be a partner in that and help with some subsidy but to also get to that issue of equity. And you know, I think we have, the public sector has to be more nimble around that. I think that sometimes agencies are slow to change, but I do think that uh, 
these types of technologies can help solve for some very challenging problems that transit has, where well, you can't serve communities that are not dense, or that it doesn't actually make sense to run a bus, but you still have to serve those communities. So what is that, how do you fill those gaps? And I think that that's where government can play a role. There's an awful lot of space in our world devoted to cars, parking lots, as you mentioned, Mark, streets. Does an autonomous vehicle future imply fewer vehicles, and therefore a lot of the space that is taken up now by parking and by roads may be freed up for other uses? What do you think? Parking, yes. Roads, no. Um, the, the parking side of it is, I, I agree, we'll have fewer vehicles in general, and, and many of them will be in use far more often. Um, on the other hand, I think the, you will see considerably more deadheading than we use right now. And the financial, the perceptual and financial incentives to take your own vehicle rather than sharing a ride are actually amazingly strong. Some very interesting research has suggested that, and the, the thing we don't understand the most is behavioral, how people will change. If you can sleep your way to work, why wouldn't you live in Cleellum? And you're not going to drive in a Toyota Prius. You're going to have a bed, right? And that will be your car. And you go to sleep for three hours, and you wind up in Seattle, and the alarm goes off when you finally get there, Sweet. and life is great, right? So there's a whole lot of incentives to act differently. Now, whether you will or won't, I don't know. And that's the whole thing. We don't understand the behavioral changes. So the behavioral change says we're going to have fewer cars. That's great. The mathematics says there's going to be a whole bunch of deadheading, which will increase the miles of the vehicles that are there. So those miles will go up. The, the parking requirements will go down. Where those parking requirements are is it definitely shifts if a fleet owns them and you pay per use. The urban model of San Francisco, absolutely, urban model. If you own them, and you are coming in from Mill Creek or you're coming in from Cleellum and you don't want to have to call one and think of the cost of that on a per mile basis regardless of the cost. You buy the car up front. Where's that car go and park? Well, you come into downtown Seattle. You don't want to pay 300 bucks parking. The car can drive itself. So you're going to send it to the closest neighborhood where free parking is. Unless government regulation steps up and says, well, you're not allowed to park it there. We want you to park it here. Or you have to sell, you have to lend your car to Uber who can then drive it around in the middle of the day. But peak period, peak ever. So there's a whole lot going on in here. On the regulatory side for road space, right? Are we, it's not necessarily total miles. It's if everybody has an incentive to take their personal car or their Uber in, because I don't want to have to stand on the bus, it's too crowded, and I've got the cheap cost to pay for this. How many of those cars fit down Third Avenue, Third and Pike? How do you make that work? And I can tell, I have Actually, one, that can was I my, tell the joke on that one? Please do. Okay, you're in good. New York. Automated cars are gonna solve the world's problems in New York, because they can drive so close together and they're gonna head down Fifth Avenue and they're not gonna hit anybody. And every New Yorker knows that no car will hit them on Fifth Avenue. Imagine the performance or lack thereof of Fifth Avenue. It's not the car. It's not the technology. It's the rules under which they're applied. Who does enforcement? The cars still have to stop at stoplights. Well, of course they do, because that's the only way you're going to allow people to cross the street, because you're not going to let them. So you're going to have to have automated cops give jaywalking tickets. Think through the behavioral side that comes with it. It's not the technology. It's the humans that are the issue. So parking, yeah, but roads, yeah. But how people use them is a real game changer. And John, that's one of the things that you wanted to speak to, how society and pedestrians will kind of need to be educated in an autonomous car future? It's a huge factor because uh, right now you've got, in California alone, you've got 35 different companies that have been licensed to test autonomous vehicles. 
on the roads. And if you stand on a street corner in downtown San Francisco today, I'll guarantee you that within an hour, you'll see a dozen autonomous vehicles go by. And there's nobody steering that car. There's somebody in the car. They have to have, by law, a safety driver, quote unquote, but the car is driving itself. Uh, the trick is, uh, for those 35 different manufacturers, right now there's about 15 different algorithms that are governing how those cars behave. Let me give you just a simple case study. Let's say you're standing at a crosswalk here in Seattle. Today, if you're about to go across the street, there's no stop sign, there's no stop light, but there's a crosswalk. Before you actually step in front of a car, you look both ways, and if you see a car coming down, you make eye contact with the driver and you, you make sure that the car is starting to slow down, then you step in front of it. Well, what if it's an autonomous vehicle that's coming down the street? Do you step in front of it the first time? Probably not, because you're gonna wait to see how it behaves. And what if you know that there are 15 different algorithms that govern how that car is perceiving you? Okay, so I think one thing that has to happen is you have to have a tremendous amount of standardization and protocol, and I think government, and I actually think a lot of this will be driven by the insurance companies, uh, because there are huge liability issues here, and they're gonna wanna have specific you know, protocols established before they're willing to insure an autonomous vehicle. So I think that's gonna kind of drive uh, you know, a set of standards. That's how people will have to be prepared. And I know, Mark, one of the things you want to talk about is how the infrastructure will need to be prepared to adopt autonomous vehicles. What, what will need to happen? So first, again, going back to different kinds of autonomous vehicles. So there are autonomous vehicles. That's a vehicle that can drive itself. It senses its surroundings. It understands, it sees and understands what it's dealing and drives based on where it's trying to go, given a map and what it perceives as the road. The federal government is working hard on what are called connected vehicles, where my vehicle talks to your vehicle. Right now, the Tesla, the Google car, they are autonomous vehicles. They have a cell phone, they download software, but they aren't doing the grid network where my car talks to your car. If you add connected vehicles to autonomous vehicles, you get a quantum jump in improvement in how well the vehicle works. But you have to be able to do the communication so a problem in that communication is how many vehicles will actually communicate back to you? Are you willing to put in the communication? And by the way, are you willing to pay for the communication of your vehicle to other vehicles and your vehicle to infrastructure? Now, once you start to talk, so okay, I'll, I'll buy the car, or I buy the car and maybe I have to have a cell phone package, another 20 bucks, that's gonna be a problem on the social equity side. Maybe I don't have to pay, because it, it's line of sight, it's not cell phone. By the way, right now, line of sight is losing the technology battle. They're going to cell phone, which means you're gonna have a bill, all right? Given that, <clears throat> again, if you don't own it, it's all part of your per mile fee and you don't care. If you own it, now I have to pay for it. That's gonna be an issue. Now, the other problem is if you wanted to talk to the infrastructure, I want to tell the light I'm coming. I want it to turn green for me. I want to know these other things. That cost comes out of public coffers. So where do you pay for that in an infrastructure environment where we don't generate the money? We can't afford to pave the roads, let alone operate it. And I'm a traffic operations guy. We build a road, we put up a signal, we time it, life is great, we leave for five years, we come back and maybe we time it again if it really needs it after five years. But you can't do that in an operating environment where my car is talking to your signal in microseconds in order to make decisions about what's going on. So again, the business, these guys were great. The business side of this will drive automated vehicles, whether I own a car or not, whether I use Uber or not. Ubers have to have a business plan in order to make it work. That's why it works in some areas and not in other geographic areas. The government will have to step in on the business side, either running their own fleet or subsidizing private fleets, to get to markets that are underserved. The communications, whether we go autonomous vehicles or connected autonomous vehicles, that is gonna be a fascinating business process on how we get to the connected autonomous vehicles, which is what the real vision that you see is promoting. And paying for that communication, particularly on the government side, is gonna require money. And it's money that does not exist at the moment. Well, ideally, what you've heard has stimulated some questions on your part, and I want to go to those questions in just a moment after a, a, a final question. I'm sorry, you want to jump in there? I was just going to mention one last thing, that 
if you step back and you think about what's happened, particularly in American society, but globally, you could argue that we got locked into a paradigm that's really not a very good one, okay? We've got too many cars that create way too much congestion, polluting the air, not particularly safe, and we spend a heck of a lot of money on it. I mean, 20% of consumer spending in the United States goes to an automobile or something related to a car like insurance or gas, okay? That's not really a great solution from a societal standpoint. So, you know, and Morgan Stanley recently did a study on autonomous vehicles. They estimate that even initially when you have, uh, you know, a, a moderate amount of autonomous vehicles on the road, the savings just in the U.S. will exceed a trillion dollars in terms of fewer accidents, you know, less congestion, more productivity. So if you step back and you say, boy, you know, it's, I don't really want to give up my car, but then you think about, is this really a good solution that we have today? I think not. Um, I don't argue that at all. The question is, how do you capture the money? You're all fairly bullish on autonomous cars. Even Shafali said, you might be surprised, but I'm not necessarily against them. And uh, after this, I'm going to throw it open to questions, short, concise questions from the audience. But the last question for each of you is, what's the biggest obstacle to adoption of autonomous cars? We've referenced some of them in the course of the conversation. But when you think of the future, what do you think is going to be the biggest speed bump on the way to widespread adoption of autonomous vehicles? Humans. Yeah. I mean, this, the whole idea of autonomous vehicles is predicated on predictability, right? And that this machine is more reliable, more predictable, but you're also dealing in an environment with humans that are probably the most unpredictable species, right? And I think that that's what I think is going to be interesting. It will take, you know, you reference this, two accidents where, you know, there's thousands of regular accidents that don't get that kind of coverage. And I think that that's what it is, is how do you get a public that has lived in a paradigm where the car has been king um, and has spawned, you know, there are lots of external externalities to that, but where you've had that, and now you're asking these same humans to now trust their kids, trust their lives in to these computers, and I think that there is an element that not technology, not business, not anybody can solve for, which is that human element, which is, well, will they accept it or not? That's a great point. Will humans accept it? What, what do you think is going to be the biggest obstacle to autonomous cars, Mark? Uh, current infrastructure. I think it will be very hard for autonomous cars to deal with the humans that are out there. Um, and the problem with autonomous cars, if you could wipe out the current and, and, and magically put autonomous vehicles on, I think life would work way better. And that would give people confidence. I'm concerned that that implementation process is going to be very slow and very ugly. Um, and for lots of ways which we don't have time for me to talk about here. The result will be a difficult time for people gaining confidence in it. In addition, I worry tremendously that the, all technology fails for whatever reason. We couldn't get the mics to work today. We couldn't, you know, how many PowerPoint presentation projectors have you had fail on you? How much time have you had your computer, right? Alt, control, delete. There's a reason that makes everybody laugh. So I worry that the technology, no matter what, will have its own issues. So how many of you have read the book, not watched the movie, read the book Jurassic Park? The opening to that has a, is an absolutely great science fiction. And it says the more complex the software, the higher the probability of there being errors. Software in an autonomous vehicle is unbelievably complex. And therefore, the probability of errors existing in it is unbelievably high. That will corrode trust in the system at some point. So the biggest obstacle will be humans, will be the complexity of the technology. What do you say, John? Well, I would totally agree with everything Shafali and Mark just said. But I think for this to happen, which I think it is going to happen, it's going to take a unique level of collaboration between government, uh, automobile manufacturers, technology companies, insurers. Um, and while that may seem daunting, I was actually pleased, you may have noticed that the US Congress 
actually agreed, the House and the Senate, and they passed the Self-Drive Act within the last two weeks. And that was a huge breakthrough because what it did is it lifted some of the legal and regulatory issues from the state level up to the federal level so that if you're an autonomous car company, rather than having to go through 50 different protocols, it's more likely now that you can deal with one. And so that to me, you know, in this political environment was a hugely, it gave me hope that this can actually move. But what keeps you up at night? I mean, what, what do you still think's out there that makes you feel is going to be the biggest obstacle going forward? I think they're all going to be solved, quite frankly. I mean, look, I see, you know, look, I could, I could list a bunch of them, like, you know, the technology is moving at light speed. Uh, you know, like, you've, right now, you know, autonomous cars have a, you see a turret on top, that's what's called LIDAR, it's light detection and ranging. It's, it's like uh, radar or sonar, but it's using light beams. That's now in the process of being converted into solid state. That's a huge leap forward, which brings the cost factor on an autonomous car way down. And so, and this is going to play out in the next, I think, three to five years. So I believe that all the obstacles can be overcome. I just think that it's the human collaboration that's going to have to happen at a high level to really make it. And finally, for you, Tom, what's, what do you think is the big obstacle to autonomous car adoption? Well, I guess I would say that nothing is going to stop it. <laughs> The, um, it's inevitable. I think we're underestimating the rapid innovation and invention that's occurring. Uh, you know, machine learning, ultimately artificial intelligence, the sensors. Um, the benefits, I think, are going to become increasingly obvious. I think there, it will be somewhat a messy process. I don't think we can avoid all deaths. I don't think we can avoid all costs. But I think there really is not a lot of infrastructure uh, requirements. You don't need to build additional lanes. You don't need to build monorails in the sky. These cars are going to be mostly autonomous. If they should connect to streetlights, already Bellevue is implementing a system that would be readily adaptable. This, these are not super expensive uh, systems that need to, need to go in. It's nothing compared to you know, building a new rail line. Um, so. I think these obstacles will be overcome. It's not immediate. There will be a kind of a messy interim period here, but I think you're going to be surprised by how quickly uh, invention and private companies, frankly, it's so different to have private companies, automobile manufacturers, both new and old, driving the process as opposed to requiring um, you know, a bond issue to build a rail system. So I think you'll see it moving much more rapidly. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Great discussion. Um, I'm wondering to what extent is the fate of autonomous driving tied to the electric car? So um, we've been there's a lot of talk about electric cars, of course, but still globally 0.3%. So what does that say about autonomous driving? The higher the utilization of a vehicle, the more monetarily it makes sense to be electric. So the, high, the, the more there are Uber, Lyft kind of services, the more likely they will be electric. So, and since there will be an awful lot of those kinds of services with automated vehicles, it will accelerate the shift to uh, battery power and other electronic technologies. That, that's very, very confident. I think uh, Tom and I were talking earlier, I think what you're going to see is the, the price of electric storage batteries come way down, and I think this is going to happen in a relatively fast period of time. The Chinese are driving this now, and just like they drove down the price of solar panels, the same thing, they're very focused on battery technology right now, and so I think that's a game changer, not just for cars, but for society broadly. So I work with children, I work for this museum. And I bring them to the self-driving car exhibit, and I ask them, how many of you want to get into a car that is driven by a robot, like a robotic car? Half of them raise their hand. The other half say, I want to drive the car. And I ask the question because in American society, it's a matter of freedom. And how much do you think that with the impending amount of technology coming out with self-driving cars, are we going to have to fight against the American ideal of its freedom? to have a car that you can change and switch out parts instead of just downloading things from the cloud. Or uh, even the idea that if you lose a loved one as a casualty of having this infrastructure in place, at least it was something that they kind of controlled. Uh, 
so one, there's no nothing, to, there's some fascinating questions. Does your automated Porsche get to drive faster than your automated Ford? That's a question that you, know, you kind of have to talk through because it's really true, right? Why would you? Um, there's no doubt that you can do your own interesting manipulations to make your car look different. It's also, there's no such thing as the American way, there's the current American way. And as you, you can see it in our attitudes towards drunk driving, which used to be quite acceptable and now aren't. You can see it in the attitudes of whether women are allowed to run on the street. You're talking to an old man who dated women when the first UW track team, where I met my wife. And women used to get harassed as they ran down the sidewalk, right? And that, that behavior changes. So it might become, uncool to drive your own car. I don't know. Those are those behavioral sides. So it'll be very interesting. The other thing that's very interesting is if you ask whether people are comfortable in, a, in an automated driving car, the older they are, the less happy they are, the younger they are, the more happy they are. So the, those of us who are uncomfortable, we may simply die out by the time they're there and it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. I work in commercial real estate. Wanted to understand your thoughts on the impact to real estate when People can essentially live wherever they want and sleep on the ride to work. Um, I think that is maybe a drawback because uh, you know think about cars and the land use to spawn um, and sort of the externalities of that, right? And I think that uh, you know there's going to be there's going to be opportunities for these cars to. I don't think they'll drive land use, but I do think that they will create a flexibility around where you want to live, right? So if you want to live in a more urban setting and don't really feel like you should need to own a car, but want to take that trip, right, to hike or whatever, the autonomous vehicle is going to give you that flexibility. Or if you want to live in a more suburban setting and you just, again, can you go from two cars to one? So I don't think that autonomous vehicles will drive land use, but I do think that it will create, people don't pick where they want to live just based on transportation, right? There's so many other factors that shape that decision. So I think it, these, these cars will help shape some of these decisions, but they won't certainly be the reason that people choose where they want to live. So the real cost of anything is the opportunity cost. What are you giving up for it? So I actually have an IT guy who works for me who lives in Cleelum and he commutes across, right? And, and he does that because it allows him to have his own art studio and still own the land. Okay, that makes sense, kind of. Um, so the question isn't, could you sleep three hours? The question is, can you structure your life? It's still three hours in a vehicle away from the other things you're trying to do. So in transportation, transportation is an economic good. The more it costs, the less you do. The less it costs, the more you do. But cost is a combination of time spent because you're not doing other things. But maybe if you're working, the car, and by the way, Ford and GM will build totally different cars. They'll build the sleeper car. They'll build the office car where you work at your desk, right? The whole way in, you meet for three hours and you go work at the desk for three hours back and hey, life is good and you're not that far away and you can live in Cleelum. So those kinds of behaviors are all possible in an automated vehicle world. The question is, do we allow them? Because believe me, they'll sell you that car if there are enough people who want to do it. So the question is, what are you going to give and take? And those options are not springing to mind in the people in this room. But as automated vehicles show up, and they will show up, people will take advantage of them because we're Americans and we're really ingenious at how we take advantage of technology. Um, hi, thank you so much. I was wondering if, if the panelists could speak directly to climate change. I know that um, um, autonomous vehicles have been invoked as a tool uh, pretty frequently, including by Governor Inslee. Um, and I, it seems to me that the, that maybe if they're shared and if they're electric, they could contribute to you know fighting climate change. But I just want to hear a little bit more directly the argument um, or for or against um, you know why why they could help or hurt our our fight against climate change. I mean, my take would be that it's going to have a very positive effect in fighting climate change. I mean, you're going to have a lot less congestion on the roads. I think you're going to have fewer cars on the roads. Uh, what's, 
okay, well, this, this is my take on it, okay. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think you will see the big shift to electric. I think you're gonna see, I mean, already, you know, you've seen, you know, Volvo and, you know, recently, you know, Mercedes. I mean, one by one, the manufacturers are coming out and they're making, a, you know, in some cases, very bold statements that within three years, it's either gonna be electric or hybrid. Uh, I think that has to have a positive impact. So I agree completely on the power side of it. It's going to go electric, and there will be enough renewable in the battery resources that those are all going to be positive on the climate change side. So that's absolutely great. What you have to then figure out into the climate change, which is much more complex than just CO2 emissions. The other aspect are what happens on the land use side as a result of it. Land use changes really slowly, and we don't understand how human behavior will really change. Right now, urban is the cool thing. Suburban is less. Will that change back? No clue how that will work. I have no honest idea whether people will take advantage of going to living in Cleelum where it's sunny and driving in asleep or having the car drive in. That would have a very interesting set of, of influences that we don't know. So those things match up, and, and we, I don't know what it is. In terms of congestion and why I laugh, travel is an economic good. When it becomes really easy to travel, more people will travel. The result is you will fill back up everything that you put away. And as costs drive you down and you can travel by yourself, you will do it. More and more people will do it. So congestion is going to be congestion. It, it may, you may not notice it. You'll be asleep. You'll be playing on your phone. You'll be doing whatever. But from a congestion standpoint, no, not going to happen. Final word on that. Uh, so back to my silver bullet point is that I think there is a danger in ascribing one technology as solving the problem around climate change. And sure, yeah, clear, you know, if it's shared and if it's electric, I think, yes, there will be positive benefits. But to Mark's point around uh, land use and these other things. And so I think that if we see it as part of the solution, but not the solution, and in a very sort of thoughtful way, yes, it's part of, the, part of helping to decrease emissions. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This Forterra Seed and Feed event, Driving the Revolution, Self-Driving Cars, and the Future We Want, took place at the Living Computers Museum and Labs on September 20th. KUOW's Ross Reynolds moderated the panel. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>